0: For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Alyssa Fixie, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirls Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. Magazine illustrations, fantastical yet grotesque creatures, and the smiling faces of a massively popular cherub-like doll. And behind it all, an immensely talented woman who lived life to the fullest and always strove to make the world better for everyone around her. The 19th century was the golden age of illustration. The popularity of periodicals combined with the newness and lack of accessibility to photographs meant that the pictures and ads accompanying the words in magazines needed to be hand-drawn by talented artists. As readers sought a more humorous bent in their reading, these illustrations also led to political cartoons and comic strips, precursors to the comic books of the 20th century. But though these periodicals were largely consumed by women, the artists who contributed to their pages were almost exclusively men. It wasn't until the turn of the century that women began to enter the celebrated and lucrative field, women like Rose O'Neill. Cecilia Rose O'Neill, or Rose as she preferred to be called, was born in 1874 in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania with ink in her veins. Her father, a bookseller, and her mother, a musician and actress, instilled in Rose and her siblings a deep passion for art and a household culture that was extremely supportive of each other's artistic explorations. Rose in particular, the second-born child and eldest daughter, drew the attention of her father. She would recall a conversation from her childhood wherein he had begged her mother to let him experiment with her education, giving her a course of study that would only include a connection to the arts, an argument Rose claimed she overheard while drawing under the kitchen table. But she can't say two and two make four, her mother protested. Why should she? He responded. I don't expect her to be at such a loss for something to say. Her father had romantic notions of life on the prairie, and so in 1877, he loaded the entire family up, including Rose and her five siblings, and moved to rural Nebraska. Mind you, this was an era when such a move would still be taken via wagon train. But the idyllic life of simple farming and filling the hours with poetry was not what the O'Neill family found. Her father struggled to garner interest in sales for his books in the neighboring communities, and her mother had no experience with the chores required of a home on the range. It wasn't long before the O'Neills moved again, this time to the city life of nearby Omaha. Rose thrived as a young artist in her new home. She honed her talent for drawing by copying the pictures she'd find in her father's many books, which piled up so much the children used them as chairs. At just 13 years old, she entered an art contest for school children at the Omaha World-Herald newspaper. She won, but her entry, entitled, Temptation Leading Down Into an Abyss, which admittedly sounds like something you'd easily find in any modern artistic 13-year-old's notebook, was such a sophisticated work that the newspaper thought she'd copied it. Before they would award her the prize, they required her to come down to the offices and draw something for them in person— For her efforts, she earned a $5 gold piece and, let's be honest, probably a pretty big heaping of well-earned self-satisfaction in the process, too. For the rest of her teen years, Rose continued to make money off her drawings. She sold illustrations to publications all over the Midwest region and as far away as Denver. It became clear that Omaha just wasn't big enough for Rose's talents so at 19 years old she moved to new york city legend has it that her mother sold the family cow to pay for her move on their way to new york her father took her to the columbian world exposition in chicago where she saw large paintings and sculptures in person for the first time rather than simply in the pages of her father's books her first residence in new york was at a convent and the nuns the sisters of saint regis would chaperone rose to meetings with publishers and magazine editors as she attempted to sell her work We're not saying that having a habit-clad representative of God himself in your corner is a bolder negotiation strategy than a mere manager or agent, but it sure didn't seem to hurt. Rose found amazing success in the city. She began selling her illustrations to publications like Cosmopolitan, Harper's Bazaar, and Collier's. It was extremely rare work for a woman to be getting, and in fact, Rose even signed her art with just her initials, CRO, to disguise her gender from the general audience, an all-too-common trend in a lot of the stories we tell of female genre pioneers. But the work was lucrative, so much so that Rose had become the sole provider for her family, who had moved once again, saying another goodbye to city living and relocating to a remote home in the Missouri Ozarks. Rose adored the new homestead. When writing in her autobiography about visiting it for the first time, she wrote, I forgot my fears and shouted my joy. I called it the tangle and my extravagant heart was tangled in it for good. She named the estate Bonnie after the small stream that ran alongside the family's cabin. In 1896, Rose wrote a comic strip, The Old Subscriber Calls. When it was printed in the pages of Truth magazine, it became the first published comic strip created by a woman. Her comic illustrations were so popular that she ended up earning a spot as a staff artist for the humorous Puck magazine. Rose was the only woman on the staff. Also in 1896, Rose married Gary Latham, her longtime pen pal and sweetheart. It started off great. Latham got along well with Rose's family of artistic dreamers and even moved in with them at Bonnybrook at one point. The marriage ended disastrously, however, when Rose discovered that Latham was intercepting her paychecks for her illustrations and spending her earnings himself. This was a betrayal for two reasons. For one, Latham was from a wealthy family to begin with and likely didn't need the money he was stealing from his wife. But it also threatened the stability of Rose's whole family given that her pay was their only source of income. The divorce was devastating for Rose, who retreated to Bonnybrook to recover. While she was there, she began receiving mail from a secret admirer back in New York. She would later discover that this mysterious would-be paramour was Henry Leon Wilson, the literary editor at Puck Magazine. His anonymous advances appealed to Rose, who had a wild romantic spirit, and the two were married. Unfortunately for Rose, her second marriage was no better fated than the first. At first, it felt like a perfect connection between two artistic and literary souls— Wilson would spend a great deal of time at Bonnybrook writing novels and plays, and meanwhile, Rose entered into a prolific and celebrated period of her own. She published her first illustrated novel, entitled The Loves of Edwy* in 1904. Then, two years later, she was elected to the Société des Beaux-Arts in Paris. This prestigious membership allowed her to exhibit her paintings in the Society's Paris Salon to much acclaim. But despite seeming good on paper, this marriage only lasted five years as well. Harry slipped into an intense depressive period, his moods becoming a permanent haze of dour and sullen, and in an era lacking the modern medical treatments for clinical depression. His melancholy didn't mix at all with Rose's temperament. She was almost a caricature of the bon vivant artist. She was upbeat, full of energy, and often spoken baby talk. Harry hated this, yet nevertheless, she persisted. The two divorced in 1907, and though they parted on friendly terms, Rose decided she'd had her fill with marriages. She never went again and never had any children. She was, however, about to create something that would be the biggest success of her career and bring joy to children around the world. In the wake of her second divorce, Rose O'Neill began to dream about cherub-like babies with brown tummies. They had big eyes and their faces were full of joy, as if always in the middle of laughing. Rose would later write that she had been drawing some version of these fairy babies throughout her life, but they finally took hold in 1908 when she would publish them in the holiday edition of the Ladies' Home Journal. She gave them a name inspired by Cupid. She called them cupies. Cupid gets you into trouble, she said, and the cupies get you out. Cupies became a cultural phenomenon. They appeared regularly in the pages of magazines that Rose did illustrations for, like Women's Home Companion and Good Housekeeping. By 1913, their popularity was so vast that Rose patented the Cupid doll and had them produced by German doll maker J.D. Kessner. But the first batch of dolls sent to her were terrible. They were so far off from her vision of the Cupies that Rose personally went to Germany and had the molds destroyed. She then worked with a teenage art student, not unlike she had once been, to create new molds that better reflected what the Kewpie should look like. The dolls were a massive success, the trolls are Funko Pops of their day, and they turned Rose O'Neill into a millionaire, netting over $1.4 million, which would translate to $35 million by today's standards. They were some of the first mass-marketed toys in the US. The success of the Cupies also helped Rose's illustration career as major brands like Jell O, Kellogg's, and Kodak hired her for their marketing campaigns. She began to buy new homes in Missouri, New York, Connecticut, and Italy, where she purchased a villa from her friend Charles Coleman when he could no longer afford it, then allowed him to continue living there until his death. This generosity was a major part of her personality. In addition to continuing to support her family, she began to treat her many estates as artist colonies. Guests would come to visit and end up moving in because she didn't have the heart to throw them out. If rising tides raise all ships, Rose O'Neill was dedicated to being that tide, especially when it came to women. Beginning in the late 19th century, the new woman movement arose. The name, from a term coined by Irish writer Sarah Grand, spoke of a new generation of women who were fiercely independent and radical, a precursor to more modern-day feminist movements. It was a philosophy that Rose O'Neill was passionately engaged in. Her own success illustrating for periodicals led to jobs for more and more female illustrators, with publications aware that 88% of the subscribers to magazines and periodicals were women. This was a far cry from the early days of Rose's career when the offices of companies she worked for in New York didn't even have women's bathrooms. Deciding to utilize the success of her QP creations, she hired Katherine Stinson, one of the earliest pilots, to distribute a collection of the dolls with tiny yellow parachutes over a Nashville fair, each bearing a sash with a women's rights slogan. She brought the same political voice to her QP illustrations, having them take up the cause of women's suffrage. Not all of her readers appreciated that her cute creations carried messages like, vote for our mothers, but Rose didn't care. She proudly displayed her suffrage banners from her apartment window in Greenwich Village and marched and protested along with the suffragette movement. She was a workaholic, though, and while she fought for the 19th Amendment, she continued to churn out pages for magazines, publishers, advertisements, and her QP pages. Soon she would move into yet another phase of her career. Rose was able to support her family at Bonnybrook while also spending a great deal of time abroad traveling through Europe. She was a natural fit for the Bohemian artist scene of the post-war continent and began to expand on her artwork, even studying under masters like Auguste Rodin. While her public work was still the bright and joyful cupid type creations, she began working on a more private, darker collection that she called Sweet Monsters. These drawings, veering more into a fine art style than her illustrations, featured mythical beings with grotesque, beastly forms contorted into the delicate poses of classical art. She was encouraged by Rodin to show the sweet monsters publicly, and in 1921, she displayed them at an exhibit in Paris and again the next year in New York. Both exhibits were well-received, but some did balk at their darker and more disturbing nature. There are some people who have found some of my pictures revolting, Rose would say of her critics. They hurt the eye. But I am not dejected like Poe. I am in love with magic and monsters and the drama of form emerging from the formless. Though she had yet another artistic success, the party eventually has to end, even for as vibrant a spirit as Rose O'Neill. By the 1930s, Rose's wealth had completely vanished. Many factors contributed to her decline in fortune. The combination of her opulent lifestyle and the cost of supporting her many artist friends at her estates took its toll. Whatever money was left was finished off by the Great Depression, the decline in the popularity of the Cupid dolls, and the shift in magazine standards from illustrations to photographs. She sold off most of her properties and moved home to Bonnybrook to retire and look after her father and mother, who would pass away in 1936 and 1937, respectively. She tried to replicate the success of her cutie characters with a new character, a laughing Buddha named Ho-Ho, but to no avail. Rose O'Neill died in 1944 at the age of 69, living a life of poverty, but basking in the wealth of satisfaction from decades of an accomplished career. She had made nearly 5,500 drawings in addition to paintings, sculptures, children's books, poems, and novels. Her memoir, written during her retirement years, was published after her death. There is one sad epilogue to the story of Rose O'Neill and perhaps an explanation as to why this extremely prolific and successful woman has faded from the pages of artistic history. Rose's nephew, Paul O'Neill, lamented in a letter written in 1956 that a fire consumed the Bonnybrook estate after her death, destroying much of her work. I shudder to think of all that burned, 14 rooms and an attic full to overflowing, he wrote. The great loss was Rose's writings and her valuable collection of rare first edition autographed books, books in which she had made marginal notes. There were valuable antique furnishings, paintings, and many priceless art treasures. And so, all that remains of the great Rose O'Neill's work is a museum collection that she had been persuaded to exhibit at the College of the Ozarks in Branson shortly before her death, and which Paul had collected from Bonnybrook just two days before the fire. That, and the countless pages of magazines in which she'd inscribed her C.R.O., and the bright, rosy-cheeked Cupid doll which one might still stumble upon in an antique shop or a grandparent's beloved belongings. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Riley Silverman and read by Alyssa Fixie. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at sci-fifangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sci-fi fangirls.